Welcome to Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast, where we are amplifying the Black adoption conversation with Black adoptee voices and Black families at the center. We're your hosts, Dr. Sam and Sandria, two Black adoptees adopted by Black families still trying to make sense of our adoption journeys. We have all been touched by adoption, whether we realize it or not. You just don't hear our stories until now. Every birth has a story. So So let's let's go go black black to the the beginning. beginning. Guess who's busy? It is black to the beginning. It's Dr. Sam. And Sandria. We are ready to get into season two, you guys. Can you believe it? Season two? Listen, the journey. (laughs) (laughs) A whole journey. Uh, But you know, they say most podcasts don't make it past 11 episodes. So we're we're winning right now. We, We are completely winning. And for all of you who supported us in season one, thank you so much. If you are a new listener to Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast, we welcome you. We encourage you to listen back to season one, to catch up to this new flow that we're getting ready to get into that we can't, we, we can't even wait to get started with all this. <laughs> we are hitting all the angles of the Black adoption experience. So we're going to have more birth mothers, more adoptive mothers. We're going to have buying siblings. Now, I'm, I'm excited about that one, you guys, because that is a conversation that we have yet to have. But more importantly, what we're going to get you into this evening is speaking about kinship adoption, because kinship adoption is where the Black adoption experience originated. We took care of our own, and it is important for us to understand that the Black adoption experience begins with those roots, and we are just thrilled to introduce you to our um, guest for this evening, Teresa Timms. (laughs) Teresa, I mean... Can we just run down the bio? I'm I'm, going to keep it short, but see, the thing is, you don't even recognize the flow, the essence, the light that this woman is coming with. But just a little bit, just a little bit, she's the Associate Dean of Religious Life in the Chapel at Princeton University, and she is the founder of Soul Joy Yoga. She is the joy extraordinaire. So if you need some joy in your life, she got you. (laughs) has you and we just thank you for being with us this evening we are ready to get into your conversation thanks for having me I'm excited I am so excited to be here let's get into this like you grew up on the coast of Biloxi Mississippi right so in the south tell us a little bit about what that was like for you Yeah, there is a particular experience of being Black, and then there is the experience of being Black and Southern. And Biloxi is the furthest South that you can get in Mississippi. I grew up on the beach, on the Gulf Coast, and my community was Black. All of the joys of being in a Black community, communal, everyone watched out for everyone. You were everybody's child. And I just 
I was the child of the community. I was raised by the community. I went to the church. We walked to church because it was down the street from the house, the park, the recreation center. My grandmother was a school teacher. My mother was a bus driver. And so everybody in the community, it's a place where you know somebody's cousin, nickname down the street. I was just telling somebody the other day, if an ambulance went down the street, you would follow it to see whose house they were going to because that's how intertwined this town was. Um, and that's where I grew up. And it was Mississippi for all of what it what, what we think about of Mississippi. It just didn't feel that way when you're brought up in it. The blackness of the community kept us safe, made us feel excellent. And so it was um it was a complicated place to grow up, but I, if I didn't grow up there, I wouldn't be who I am today. Mm. Yeah, the South is definitely a, a special feeling. So like, even when I've gone to the South and traveled, like there's a distinct difference between the South and the Midwest. But I think Sandy and I could probably agree that the experience that you're talking about, that having someone like looking out for you I remember distinctly like somebody being like, I'm gonna tell your grandmama, I'm gonna tell, you know, whomever. And the community had the, the responsibility and the authority to discipline, you know, if necessary, like that was a thing and it's not quite the same way, you know, anymore. And I'm a little not bit, I'm envious of you actually, because I've always wanted that down South experience, but all of my family was here in Chicago. So I never mm -hmm. had, you know, the summer trips, go visit your grandmother down. Never mm -hmm. had that. So, you know, if, if I can shadow you one summer and, you know, take a trip back to Mississippi, you know, I would love that. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's something about honeysuckles and watermelon and magnolias and mm. barbecue and fish fry and good food and sitting on a porch. Just all of that is part of what I grew up with. That is, I didn't realize it was like this. Um, now we, we, we hashtag it and it's social media popular, but it was just life. This is just what we did growing up. So you grew up with your grandmother and your, and your um, mother as well? They lived around the corner from each other. The town is so small that you just, you're close. I never went to daycare because the family lives right there. Everybody takes care of you, watch out for you. So my mom always lived around the corner from my grandmother, no more than five miles. And so I lived with my mother growing up until I was around eight years old. And then she wasn't able to take care of us anymore. So we moved in with my grandmother, but um, always very close proximity. And so I know we've talked to you a little bit before this interview and we know what an integral part that your grandmother played in your life. Talk to us a little bit more about that relationship, the importance of it to you, and how that impacted you when your mother wasn't able to be around in the way that maybe she would have desired to have been. Yeah, my grandmother was the, when I look back on her now, I don't know how she did it. She was married with two children. She went to college. She left her kids with her husband and went to college and came home on the weekends. 
And she was just this audacious, dark-skinned Black woman. And that matters because even having darker skin in Mississippi, there's a whole colorism chain that is real. And so when my grandfather married her, my grandfather is way lighter complexion. His family was upset for marrying her. But she was always just this. She's a member of Delta Sigma Theta. She was a Head Start teacher for over 30 years, just engaged and active in the community. And when my mother became addicted to crack cocaine, it was the late 80s, and my mother wasn't able to raise myself and my sister anymore. We went to live with my grandmother. It it felt natural because anytime we ate, anytime we gathered, anytime anything happened, it was with Granny Ruby. She made life happen. And I don't know what it was like for her to say, I will raise two grandchildren as she was working and living her life. I, I look back at it now. And the, the hard thing about living in a small town in Mississippi is that everybody gossips and everybody talks and everybody knows everybody's business. And there's nothing about my mama that is small. Like she had a big voice and a big body and her bigness just took up the space. And so did her addiction. Her addiction took up the space. Everybody in town knew that she was on drugs. Everybody in town knew that her life had crashed. And so my grandmother is this humility of raising your grandchildren and what does it mean to sort of become the primary caretaker when all these other parts of her life look so good. And so my grandmother, she taught me the importance of being a dark-skinned Black woman. I had to learn the Black national anthem, going to Sunday school, going to church, public speaking, showing up, being unapologetic. Those were all things that she instilled in me very, very young that I just thought it was just granny's way of doing things. I didn't realize how much she was preparing me for life. And if it wasn't for my grandmother taking us in, I wouldn't be here today. I really would not be here today without her. When you say us, you're speaking about yourself and your sister, but tell us the nuances of the relationship with your sister or the title of sister. Yeah. So my grandmother and my grandfather had two children, a daughter and a son, and my uncle and his wife had a daughter and they just weren't able to take care of her. And so my mother and her husband legally adopted Portia. So Portia was my first cousin and my sister. And they legally went through the channels of adopting her. She had our last name. We have the same last name. We even had the exact same social security number down to the last digit. There was only one number difference in our social security number. And so, yeah, she's eight years older than me. And growing up when we would fight, I would say, um, you're not my sister anymore. And she was like, I'm still your cousin. So we had to put this <laughs> sister, um, cousin. And I loved her to death. And also when she was my mom's addiction, you know, addiction is one of those things that it, it's, it's a slow creep for people. And I remember Portia, she cooked the food and she did homework with me. She taught me how to read. And she kept me safe as much as, you know, an 11, 12 year old could until it just all fell apart. The, the day that my grandmother came to get us, it felt like the Calvary had come. The lights had been cut off. We didn't have any food. The car was gone and she just came and just packed up our stuff and we never lived with my mom again. And so Portia was the, um, she also was another person who kept me safe, but she was also so young. But yeah, sister cousins, first cousins, first sisters, mm -hmm. all the way. All the way. Did you understand what adoption meant when, when Portia went from being your cousin to your sister? Did you understand that relationship? I, no, like 
I, I learned about it as I got older. So Portia's eight years older than me. So she was already their child. My mother and her husband, my mom, she was like a seamstress and a singer and she traveled the world. Her husband was in the military. So they had this family of three and they lived in Japan and it was just this wonderful life until my mother and her husband got divorced and my mom moved back to Mississippi and that's when she became addicted to drugs. But I just grew up with this big sister. That's all I knew. All of our baby pictures were together. And it wasn't until I was older that I learned that she was adopted. But because she was my uncle's daughter, it didn't even seem like adoption wasn't this formal language. It was just like, that's, that's just the cousin, that's the sister. So it wasn't, I didn't have a full understanding of what that meant. So at what point was there an actual conversation? So did your grandmother ever come to you and say like, this is what it is, this is what has transpired or as children, did you kind of figure out what happened along the way? It was a both and. It was a level of pride for my mother of adopting Portia. It was a place where she felt most confident in her life. Her life was together. She had all these things. And so it was a source of pride of saying, I went through this process. We went through this process to adopt Portia. And so it was talked about often. And it was, and not like in the place of woe is me, but in the place of like, this is what we did for our family. Like we weren't going to let her go through the system. She, she was always going to be ours. And so the legal, because it was legal, not like we just went and picked her up. Like it was that was a source of pride for mom because that's when she had it together in her life. Interesting because, you know, it's so many times that Black families just do not have the conversation around yeah. what is happening. And there's that shame element that goes along with it as well. So I appreciate you bringing up the word around pride. Like there's a pride around taking care of your family, right? But also being very clear about this is what that process was. So I think yeah. that's part of what we're missing within the Black adoption conversation is that it was an adoption, that there is no shame in it being an adoption. It was the responsibility, the accountability, the love that was necessary to keep that family together. So I really appreciate you yeah. saying that. And hearing you tell the story about your mother and this amazing life that she had. It sounds like she was living her dream. You know, yeah. she had the family and, and all of these things. And so it just breaks my heart just even thinking about how that changed after the relationship ended and, you know, this drugs addiction, just literally taking everything, take, taking the essence of her. Yeah. Um, how did you process that even as a little girl so remembering the family coming and taking you in Portia and never being in the care of your mother again how did you in your own child like way process that oh it was horrible it was shameful and it's one of those things of I was smart I was in the, the advanced classes I did all the things and I'd be like, please do not let my mama come to, and my mom came to everything. That's one thing, she came to everything. And I'd be like, please do not let her come high. Please let her come and behave. She was a functioning uh, addict. Like she, God, thank God that nothing happened, but she drove school buses the entire time she was 
on, on drugs and she'd be high as a kite, but it was always her behavior was so unpredictable. So it wasn't like we went with my grandmother and my mom just sort of floated away. It was her instability and coming in and out that made it so chaotic and just like, and being in a small town too, the blessings of a small town is also the burden of a small town. Everybody knows everything and her shenanigans, the way that she would get money or borrow money. I'm 41 now. I've spent my, it wasn't until last year in therapy that my therapist said to me, you can stop running. You're, you'll never be her because all of my life was about not being her of what it's like to have everything and lose it. And so my life has been about overcompensating and overperforming and not trying to fall into that trap of my mom. And so it was hard. It was so hard. And it's not until her death that I've been able to look back through the rear view mirror with a perspective of grace that, um, yeah, of grace that I couldn't grasp when she was alive. And I'm curious, I know you and Portia were, were very, very close. Did she ever talk about essentially being uprooted from family twice, from her birth parents and, and now from her, her current family to be, to be with your grandmother? Yeah, Portia and I ended up living very different lives. She never graduated from high school. And now, you know, with all of the knowledge that I have now looking back, issues of abandonment, she always had bad relationships just never saw herself as how brilliant as she was. And she, she lived a life way harder than she should have. And it's because she always felt like she needed to be close to family. It's like being loyal to family in this way that I think it cost her, I would almost say it cost her her life that she wasn't willing or able to leave. And um, yeah, we both really struggled and processed how to make sense of of how we are very, very different. So where I excelled in school and put all of my energy into that and being overcompensating, her whole thing was how to how to just stay under, under the current, not shift any, not rock the boat, not cause any issues, being close to home, taking care of everybody. Almost like she felt like she was indebted to take care of everybody. So yeah, I wish she were alive today that we could have a conversation about that. So Portia passed away and you inadvertently ended up taking in your nephew. And I want you to talk to us a little bit about what that process has been like for you from going from pretty auntie, which was the original nickname, you know, as he was little, to becoming TT Mommy, another kinship situation. Yeah, so Delmas, my nephew, he was due on my birthday and he was born November 1st and he was the first baby born in my family since me. So we were so excited about his birth. We have a small family, like a small nuclear family. So it was like, we were so excited about his birth. And, but because Portia was so unstable and I, I just did so much to make sure that he was taken care of. So during the summers, he would spend summers with me. I would be home every holiday to just sort of be this person in his life that was had the stability. But Portia died of meningitis. She got sick in August of 2011. And she just kept complaining about headaches. And she went in the hospital and she never came out. She died on my birthday. She was 40 years old. And she died on my 32nd birthday. 
And while she was in the process of dying and we knew like, if you had meningitis, the meningitis was on her brain and her body was slowly shutting down. But because my family is good old Southern Baptist Christians, we were like, we're gonna pray, like by his stripes, we are healed. And while they were talking all of that, my whole thing was like, we have to have a plan for this baby. Like we, he was eight years old, like there was no plan. His dad had six kids, like it's just nothing was gonna work. And so I just, I was like, I can't leave him in Mississippi. I cannot leave him in Mississippi. Um, there was nobody there who could really take care of him. And so it was just like a no brainer for me that I would take him. And when she died on my birthday, for me, that was just like the sign of like, this is, this is what everything's gonna be okay. Like, this is what you do. And so I began getting the paperwork together around him coming to, to live with me. And so I moved him from Mississippi to Washington DC to, to live with me. And uh, it was, it was hard. It was hard. It was so hard. I went from being recently divorced and single, like a fast auntie. I was trying to be yes. like Sandria. <laughs> yes. Living my best life in DC to just this fast crash course into DC school lottery, after school care, day. I mean, just all of the things that you have to work out to get a child. So she died in November. And I just asked my family and my, my mom, I was like, if you just let him like stay with you until, cause she was already staying with her because um, of the time she was in, Portia was in the hospital. And so I just asked for those months to not take him out of school early and move him in the middle of the school year. And so those eight months I had from November to June to just prepare my life and everything for him to come and the legalities of bringing him across state and across country and whew, it, it, look, that says it all, <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, you're 32, you're moving and shaking, doing your thing in DC. Did you see motherhood in your future at any point? So is that something that you wanted for yourself at some point, but not necessarily at 32? Yeah, I had once upon a time I was married and after, after I got divorced, I was like, you know, I'll never, I'll never parent. Like, I'm done, like, let's hit the streets. And then when this happened, it was not a, a second thought in my mind of this is what I needed to do. And so I didn't know that parenthood and motherhood would look like this, but yeah. Well, the people cannot see you, but being a fast mommy. <laughs> yes. I'm here to tell you, but you can't. Yeah. Fast mommy goes, fast mommy. <laughs> But the one thing I'll say though, is that I had not, so then in my head, I was like, I have all the resources and I have all the, um, the connections and everyone, everyone in DC who I knew was helping me prepare for this child. Like all of the stuff was there, but yeah, the one thing that I wasn't prepared for was the emotional and mental part of it, of the layers of grief, the grief that he had about losing his mother, the grief that I had about losing my sister, the grief that I already had, that I was fresh, like out of a divorce, the grief of, even though this life, <laughs> ah, the way that we think that resources make everything so much better, like this child is gonna come to this life and this house and you don't have to do anything but be a child. 
the survivor's guilt that he felt of leaving everybody in Mississippi. Um, he had not been introduced to fresh foods and fresh produce and just all of like the ways that like the mentality. So you can have all of the physical financial things in place, but the emotional and mental side of it is just, it is, we cried a lot. We cried a lot. That first year was also the stigmas around being a black single parent. And I kept feeling that I need to introduce him as my son. And then I was like, but, but I'm not a single mother because all of the stuff around being black single mama, the stigmas around that, but I didn't want to feel like I was part of those statistics. And so trying to explain the situations and then I'll never forget one day someone asked who he was and he was like, I'm not her son, I'm her nephew. So then having to have a conversation around how he wanted to be introduced. And it's just so complicated. Just the layers of all of that is, it's complicated. Did um, you all ever reach a decision on, on what title? Are you going with son, nephew? What has been his comfort level? Yeah, nephew, he always, and his thing was, I have a mama, I have a mama. And I wanted to honor that. And so putting him in grief camp and a grief program with other, it's called Good Grief, an organization for kids who've lost parents. Um, but just all of this language and all of the ways that society thinks about parenthood and what that looks like and relationships and family. And because he had this such a survivor's guilt around leaving Mississippi, he, he felt guilty around anything, anything extra. He would, add, like when he first came to live with me, he would like save food and was like, you don't need to save food. He was like, but what if we run out of food? Like all of those insecurity things that kids pick up so young, that was just in his head of just, just not wanting to enjoy life because all these people in Mississippi were struggling. And then going home for the holidays because family, like you gotta go home for the holidays and Christmas breaks and things like that. And then he'd go down there and it's just a whole different lifestyle and then coming back and just all of that was emotionally hard. And so, yeah, it was the first few years were just hard, hard. What helps kind of make that transition. I know he's older now and he's gone through counseling and different grief programs. So where are the two of you now? He is 18, graduating high school this year. Yes. And he actually, um, when we moved here to Princeton, he just really did not like Princeton. You can imagine being in Washington, DC, which is all black and culture and everything to why at <laughs> and <laughs> um Princeton is white with many syllables and like he just really didn't like it here and so he uh, moved back to Mississippi and it was a hard decision and we really we struggled about it because all the ways that I couldn't keep him safe in Mississippi and but he was clear that he wanted to go back there and so he's back in Mississippi he graduates from high school and we've grown up together in this way of our relationship we we have such honest conversations in the beginning my my rules were I will never thank you or whoop you and I will never lie to you so we've had such an honest conversation around everything and that's our relationship now where um yeah yeah, he's, he's an unbelievable young man. And I can't believe that he's graduating this year from high school. So well, kudos to both of you. Right. Look, Congratulations. That's 
Are you still TT, mommy? Is that I am TT. I am still TT. I will always be TT. And, you know, as he's coming to his own, so he's also experienced so much loss and being able to hold on to the things that he can hold on to. Like, like I don't think we realize how important language is and titles are. And so TT is something that he's, that he's always held on to for me. And so I will always be TT. And if you want something, it's pretty auntie. But. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking about language though and just the topic of our conversation tonight which is really focusing on kinship adoption does your nephew identify as being adopted or do you identify as him being black and adopted no we've never ever used that language of adoption and it was so fraught and the only reason, so we did legal kinship guardianship for him and it's because his father would have to terminate all of his rights in the adoption and he, he didn't want that. And even though his father is not engaged and active in his life at all, it would be another loss for him. And so he, he didn't want that. And that was a hard decision because it would make, it would have made life so much easier to do an adoption, but the guardianship was also good, but no, we, we didn't, we didn't go that route. And something about that language for him, he, he never, like, it was just a no, like family, 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 like fam, like holding on to that was important for him. I think that's important even for him to be able to define that for himself. So I think it's amazing that you didn't go in and make an executive decision for him, but really brought him into that process and really was concerned about how do you feel? How, how, how do you want this relationship to work? So because I grew up in a heavy handed household, like whatever we say, go, and this is how it is. I just, out of, you know, all of the intuitive parenting and all of the books that you read and all that kind of stuff, I really wanted to parent better. And not that how I was raised was horrible, but I wanted to do something better for him and for myself. And I just couldn't have another battle. Like the other thing too, is that when you push kids so much, like it comes out in their behaviors, it comes out in bedwetting, it comes out in all of these ways that they're trying to communicate what they need. And it was just like, this is just not, on the scale of things to worry about, this is not something that I'm willing to, to take from him. I really like that you threw out the term about guardianship as well. So for other individuals that are listening to this podcast, that there are multiple ways that you can bring a family member into your care. So I know you have proclaimed yourself as a, a type A woman, right? So we would love to hear some tips from you to family members on how they may navigate like the, the process of guardianship or, or even making that decision. To, to take care of one of their family members. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a process. It's a legal process. You still have to go to court. Um, you still have to file. So having all of the paperwork together around it. And guardianship was important because I needed to get him on insurance. I needed to get him benefits. I needed to, I needed to legally be able to register him for school and daycare, take him to the doctor. So those are all the things that you don't think about it until you have a child in your care full time. Like you can't do anything 
legally with this child without some type of something. So if it's not adoption, um, guardianship is a is a route. Kinship guardianship is a route to take, and it's through the courts. And you don't need an attorney if you can navigate that process. And also just having a community of support of people where you can talk about this, talk through it with. I had no clue what I was getting myself into. Just no idea around school and daycare. I mean, just all of the the, the things, the basics of taking care of a child. I had no clue. I had no clue. And so, especially if you're someone who do not have children of your own or you've never raised children, having other people around to help you through the process is so important. But having all of your legal paperwork, as Black people say, the paperwork, make sure you have <laughs> together. How did you deal with the uncertainty and all the things that you didn't know? Because for me as a single woman, that's what that's what scares me. Like if someone, if something happened to someone in my family and I was <laughs> the next of kin to have to take care of a child, I would be out of my, I don't know. I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. I don't <laughs> know. How did you get over that to do what you needed to do? It's, it's like with anything else that we do, Sandria, we don't know until we have to know. And then once we have to know, the universe provides us with everything that we need. I'll never forget, I needed to take him school uniform shopping because in DC you wear school uniforms. And I had no clue how to buy boys pants. I didn't know what the two, I was in the dressing room bawling and this man walked by and I was like, can you help me? Like, I didn't just, you don't know, you don't know that you need to register in January for summer camp in June until you meet other mothers. I mean, you don't know that you need to buy five pair of nice, uniforms and then like 10 pair of like used uniforms so they're gonna tear them up like you just don't there's just there's things that you don't know and so until you're looking for it you won't find it like none of that was on my purview around lottery school lottery and daycare and pediatricians and all of that but just like when you want a barber or when you want to change your hair you want a new outfit like you you find it and so I was invested in making sure that he had what he needed you give me hope. The one thing that I do know about Black people is that we will make a way. We will figure we it out. Will, we will make a way. And the one thing that I love about being a Black woman and about Black women is that we, we know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody else, that we are not doing this alone. And so even though I was a solo parent, this is the last thing I'll say, even though I was a solo parent, so there was no daddy coming on the weekends, there was nobody I was doing every other weekend, I was a solo parent. But what happened was like, people would be like, I'll, I'll come and get him on the weekend, or we'll do a play date, or if you have a late meetings on this day, like people showed up to help me and I just needed to let them help me. It wasn't that I didn't have the help, I just needed to give, let people in to help me. And I'm so thankful for our, our, our tribe. Well, I feel like you're, you're kind of in your empty nester phase now. You're, you're getting back <laughs> into your fast Auntie Ruth. Y'all can't see this popping red lipstick, but she's got the red lipstick. She's got the red earring. She is back on the block. <laughs> and you just have some exciting, amazing things going on. And we want to get into this amazing project that you are a part of. There's a new documentary um, that's coming out on Netflix. It'll actually be out probably by the time that this conversation airs. 
in our mother's gardens. So telling the stories of our mamas and their mamas. Tell us about that experience. How did that even come together? Yeah, I never really publicly shared about my relationship with my mother because it was always so fraught. And I just carried just a lot of shame around it. I hated Mother's Day. All of the words and cards never matched the relationship that I had with my mother. And so this project came about talking about mothers. And when we filmed the project, my mother was still alive. And just thinking about all of the things, there are mornings when I wake up and I look in the mirror and I am my mama, like I like my face. And then I think about the ways that I show up is because of my grandmother and my mother and these women. And so this project of telling the stories of who we are, our birth stories, our mothers, our grandmothers, the daughters of. And so I'm so excited to be a part of this project. And the only reason why I was able to do this project is because of my years of therapy in doing this work of learning how to reparent myself of all of the mothers who have mothered me who weren't my um, biological mother. And so thinking about motherhood in a different way. So that's the project. And once I told this story of, I do not have the Black people love our, like, we love our mamas, all the songs about mamas. And I didn't have that same type of, I love my mama so much in this good, yummy type way. And once I shared my story, this tension and this pain, so many other Black women said, oh my goodness, I have a fraught relationship with my mother. And I've been afraid to talk about it or ashamed to talk about it because that is not the normative narrative that we hear when it comes to Black women and mothers. And so it's very honest and everything that I said was honest because I filmed it when she was alive. And now that she's dead, there's nothing that I said that I regret. And I'm also so thankful that I did this project because it's just a part of a larger story that that provides this mosaic of stories of Black women and motherhood. And so I'm excited about it. And I'm thankful for it because learning to reparent yourself is the work that we have to do, that, that we have to do. Mm, so speaking about the, the work that, that we have to do and reparenting, you, you've spoken a lot about therapy, but what else is in your, your toolbox that has really just helped you heal? Yeah, you know, the one thing that I didn't say that is so important for me to say is that all the time that I thought I was saving my nephew, that he was saving me. Mm-hmm. He was helping me to see the places that I needed to take care of myself. So when my nephew came to me, I was almost 500 pounds and I was depressed. I was overworking. I was overcompensating. I had been through this divorce. And when he came into my life, it was like, I have to live for this baby. Like I need to take care of myself. And it totally restructured my life. And so I joined Girl Trek, an organization for black women and girls. And every day I had this discipline of walking. And so I've lost the physical weight, but this discipline of walking and self-care and community care has been such a part of my healing process. So it is putting myself first. I taught him how to fix his own breakfast because it's like, TT gonna be walking the first part of the morning. By the time you get up, put the waffles in. And by the time I get back and I'm out of the shower, it's time to go to school. But this way that I was able to model for him of taking care of myself, I went back and got my doctorate while I was still parenting with him. Just all of the things that he helped me to bring out of myself and that I wanted to teach him 
discipline, but I needed to teach him by modeling that and doing it myself. And so therapy, walking, prayer, yoga, I'm a certified registered yoga teacher, all the ways of being in touch with my body and the earth. Those are, those are all the things that have been healing for me over Mm -hmm. these years. That just literally gave me chills because whenever we talk about kinship care and adoption, oftentimes there's this phrase of of the savior, you know, Mm -hmm. parents are coming in and and you're saving these children who need saving. And I just appreciate you saying like, no, he actually saved me. He helped me. He helped heal me. And I just think that's, I think if other people had that perspective and really thought Mm -hmm. about that, like you're not just, you're not saving somebody else. Like this is a reciprocal relationship. Absolutely. I, he had lost too many people and it was like, I'm not going to do anything to, to shorten my time here. How can I expand my time here? How can um, this is all of the things of preparing meals together and having honest conversations, the things that I needed, I was able to, to work it out with him in ways that were healthy. And so he was in therapy. I was in therapy. We had family therapy, but I had to do a lot of growing up and owning my own shit that I had brought and that I was carrying that I was like, I gotta let this go if I wanna do this the best that I can do it. I think as black adoptees and even in the larger adoption conversation, you get caught up in that, like wanting to know your biological family and being torn between the family that raised you. And I think what's just even more solidified as I'm listening to you is around motherhood is not just about who you birth out your body. Like motherhood is a decision. You made a decision to, to take your nephew in, to care for him, to mother him, even though you're still TT, right? Mm-hmm. But that was a decision that you made. And that really resonates with me. And I, I also really appreciated your comments around modeling care. So again, in order for us to care for others, we have to care for ourselves as well. So you spoke about like having that that discipline, right? But also engaging in your own therapy, making sure that you're prayerful. But I think as a, a joy enthusiast yourself, like really ensuring that you have joy because this is the way you're going to model again for that young man how to take care of himself and to someday perhaps have a family you know of his own so motherhood looks a lot of different ways and thank you for for sharing with us what your motherhood looks like thank you so so much for having this conversation and I the one thing that I'll say about this podcast that I'm so thankful for the work that you all doing is that these conversations aren't had enough that there are so many ways that families look like, especially for our community. And I'm just thankful that you all are shedding light on another way that we create family. Thank you. Thank you. Look, we get all verklempen. Ber- <laughs> <laughs> like, we just don't know what to say. So we'll just say thank you. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Right. We really want our listeners to continue to engage with you. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
where they can learn more about you, whether it's through websites, social media, where can the people learn more about Teresa Timms? Yeah, um, my website is mynametheresatimms.com and um, I do coaching and yoga and I am I'm on the socials. I, the, the socials that I spend the most time on is Instagram and it's Teresa S. Timms on Instagram and Teresa S. Timms on Twitter and Facebook. But yeah, it's important to me to live a life that's authentic in every space I show up in. I am the same version of myself. There's not multiple versions of me and that authenticity keeps me free. And that's what I want to spread and give to everybody joy and freedom. And so thank you again for having me. Thank you, Teresa. <laughs> and cheers to keeping it 100. Thank you for listening to another episode of Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast with Dr. Sam and Sandria. If you want more Black to the Beginning, follow at Black to the Beginning and hashtag Black and Adopted on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you would like to share your Black adoption experience, check out our Instagram at Black to the Beginning and click the link in our bio. Remember, the Black adoption conversation is the Black family conversation. These discussions can be difficult, but necessary for generational healing. Let's keep the conversation going for the culture. <laughs>